I don't know if you guys remember last time I preached, Andrew teased me that I didn't have my Bible up here with me, so I brought reinforcements this week. And uh, settle in, because we're going to be here a while. Whoa. That's good. That's good. Um, before I start, I, I also want to thank you for, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're all not on spring break, but I'm really grateful that some of you aren't on spring break, because there's a lot of us missing, and it's really nice to have you here to preach to. So, um, And I also wanted to open up with honesty, of just saying, I just want to tell you, um, this has not been a great week for me. And if you guys have not had a great week, we're in the right place. Um, I am not bringing a whole lot to this stage this morning. And I celebrate the fact that as a church, we don't count on that. We count on that God's going to speak to us. And it doesn't matter who's up here. It doesn't matter who's singing. It doesn't matter where you are or what you brought into this place. I just, I felt like everything I touched this week just went south. And yet I am so confident that as we spend this time together, God's going to move in, and he's going to do something wonderful. And therefore, whatever happens this morning, it's all God. And I thank you for that. So this week, we're currently in a Lenten season, and we're headed towards uh, Easter. Over the next several weeks, we're going to take a deep dive into the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll be looking at the resurrection through many different people and their different perspectives through the eyes of the people who actually lived through the event of the resurrection. We're going to see how once they considered the reality and understood the reality of the resurrection, the reality that particular reality changed every single part of their lives. In light of the resurrection, that reality changed the way they thought about everything, the way they approached everything, the way they looked at everything. In light of the resurrection Jesus, of Jesus, they excitedly stepped back and asked this question, where do we go from here? And you notice in the title, I put an exclamation point, not a question mark. Because it wasn't with a question mark, like, where do we go from here? It was with excitement. Where do we go from here, given this new reality? That, um, that is the title of the series that we're going to be going through this Easter as we look at the impact of the resurrection on the world through the eyes and the lives of people who were actually there when it happened. Now, for this week, because we were not there, we're going to try and do our best to go back to the history-changing event ourselves. Before we move into the perspective of others and look at how they responded, we are going to go back and make sure that we ourselves are rock solid on the foundational element of our faith. We are going to focus this week, just briefly, for a week, to make sure that we are rock solid on the truth that matters most about the resurrection, and that is that it really did happen. That after being brutally crucified by the Jewish and the Roman leaders, Jesus of Nazareth really did, was tortured. He really did die. He really was in a tomb. And he really rose again after three days. Inside this church, the vast majority, I'm sure, you are shouting in your hearts, yes, yes, I believe that. I want you to know, I believe that you believe that. But I also know that we live in a culture where that belief is looked at as mostly a Christian belief, much more than a historical event. Since the Enlightenment period, it has become more and more politically, intellectually, sociologically, and, and philosophically, philosophically unpopular to believe that Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead. In many ways, Jesus' death and resurrection has been pushed off into a corner as just another religious belief. 
It is solely a Christian belief. But if Jesus did not really, truly rise from the dead, then it is a religious farce, a ridiculous farce, and actually belongs nowhere in religion. It belongs nowhere in social impact. It belongs nowhere in history. It is just purely a false farce and belongs nowhere. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 19. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life alone, we are of all men to be pitied. There it is in pure clarity. Declared by one of the writers of the majority of the New Testament, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you, you Christian, you are not to be admired. You are not to be followed. You are not to be listened to. You should be pitied for believing such a ridiculous hoax. In other words, as Christians, we have bet the farm on the fact that Jesus really physically rose from the dead. And clearly, as Christians, we have to be rock solid on that foundational point of our faith. Conversely, because conversely, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then neither the event or Jesus himself can be pushed into any corner of any thought. If Jesus really rose from the dead, he does not belong in religious thought. He transcends religious thoughts. He transcends human thought. He transcends human boundaries. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then the answer, oh, that's good for you, Christian, is not a reasonable response. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then every, limit, every living human being must deal with the question, where do we go from here? They have to ask that. What does his resurrection mean to the world? What does his resurrection mean to me? That is the only logical response if Jesus really rose from the dead. That is the only logical response to the greatest and most unique event, not in religious history, but in all of history. What today's message is not. The intention of this message is not to turn us all into Christian apologists. Apologists are simply people who are called to give a reasonable response for their faith. And I am grateful for apologists. I actually love reading and listening to apologists. They help me. It's just the way I'm built. But I realize some of you actually don't need the reason backup to some of what you believe. Some of you are more prone to just faith and believe. I used to not believe you all existed, quite frankly. <laughs> I thought because I had to have the proof and I had to have the questions answered, I thought everyone did. But I did find out people like my wife tend to be able to go to faith even ahead and before having all of the reason behind it. And to be honest, I find myself choosing to be more around people of faith than other apologists, I have to be honest, because I just like being around faith. However, I am so grateful that there are the apologists. I am so grateful that someone has done the study and I'm so grateful for all the work that they've done, and I'm convinced, and I've seen it in Linda and so many other people I've talked to, the fact that the more backup we have for our faith, the stronger our faith becomes. 
Early in my Christian walk, I was listening to something and a man said this, my heart cannot fully rejoice in something that my mind says may not be true. And I thought, yes, that's true of me. I can rejoice to a certain extent until my mind starts saying, but what if it's not true? It tends to dampen down some of my rejoicing if my mind is saying, this can't be true. I believe this is true of every human being. I will grant often to a different extent in different people, but in the end, our hearts can be pulled back from fully rejoicing and full surrender to Jesus when our minds are wrestling. But is it really true? I believe this is why Paul is so strong in encouraging that every one of us as followers of Jesus must continue to renew our minds to the truths of God. That is a call that's put on our lives and it's in the scriptures. Then why not have the goal that all of us be apologists? Why not have the goal to know all the answers to all the questions? We just admitted that we live in a world that has a hard time believing. Why not go out, study, learn all the answers, and let's go debate everyone in the faith? First, it doesn't work. Believe me, I tried. I would out of all these books because when I first became a Christian, I dug in and I was going to get every answer. Most of the apologists are here. Lennox, Zacharias, Colson. Chesterton, Lewis, and I read everything I could get my hands on. And you know, I still always ran into people that were not ready to believe, even when faced with a reasonable argument for their questions, because they just didn't want to believe. First, it doesn't work. Second, there is no end to the questions, and you cannot prove everything. Rest. There is no end to questions, and you cannot prove everything. You'll never be able to answer all your questions. You'll never be able to answer all their questions. I want to tell you about an experience I had after all of my study. I went to Russia when the wall first came down, and we were going to be facing with people that uh, were incredibly intelligent. And when we were at a conference, I had an interpreter, and she wanted to place her faith in Christ, but her husband, who was one of the lead interpreters, very intelligent, wouldn't let her because he said that the Bible wasn't reasonable and fought her. And so they set up a meeting that I would get to talk to him. And I sat down and I talked to him and I was excited for the opportunity, looking forward to it. And I sat down and he came down with a list of like 10 or 12 questions. I can't remember what all of them were, but he read them off and one was, I need you to prove to me the size of Noah's Ark and then the fact that all the animals could actually fit in there. I need you to do the reason explanation of why Jesus spoke in parables and why he didn't just tell directly exactly why he didn't ask this question and that question. Contrast all the seven major worldviews between the Christian worldview, human, or, uh, Hinduism, Judaism, Buddhism, and secular humanism. And then my view of creation of the world between biological evolution, theistic evolution, old earth creation, new earth creation, I was like, ah. Uh. <laughs> they weren't all there. I didn't have all the answers. And I sat down with that man, and my experience in Russia asked the question is, my books didn't prepare me to answer all of those questions with all that reading. God has not enlightened us with every answer, and we need to be comfortable with the reality that God is simply too big to be fully intellectualized. And we shouldn't fight that truth. We should celebrate that truth. That's part of the glory of God. If we ever fully define him, we will have defeated the very thing that we're looking for, a God that's beyond our definition. So I'm very comfortable, but trust me, 
If you run and talk to somebody that's trying to live anything but a biblical worldview, I guarantee you they have less answers to their questions than you do. Don't let them make you believe that they've got all the answers. Ravi Zacharias is a great thing. He never speaks. and He says, I will answer any question you have from my Christian worldview, but only if you are willing to answer that same question from your worldview. And you cannot believe how many questions that silences. People want to shoot at our worldview, but ask them to answer it from their own. It's often a very effective tool. That's just a sideline. Sorry. We're not trying to be apologists. Um, yeah, trying to know, that's a freebie. Trying to know everything, not possible. Trying to know everything, not effective. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be, be cursed. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, unless it's by the Holy Spirit. There you're set free. We're just looking for where is the Spirit working. My Russian friend, I couldn't answer all his questions, but God did. To this day, I cannot tell you exactly how I responded. All I knew is that I did not know all his answers. We sat there and talked for an hour and a half, and all I can explain is that Luke 12, 12 came true, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what you need to say. And after an hour and a half of discussion, he looked across to me and he said, you have given me all that I really wanted to know, and that is simply to believe that it is reasonable to believe that the Bible is true. It was awesome. And that one response paved the way for my interpreter to give her life to Christ, and she's now served in Christian ministry for 25 years. Praise God. Holy Spirit. That is what I found knowledge and confidence in the scriptures can do. It cannot debate someone into the faith, but it can break down barriers for them being willing to explore the faith. If the Holy Spirit is at work. That's what we have to be looking for. Where are you working, Lord? We live in a world that believes that this Bible is a bunch of fables and fairy tales. In fact, I am often humored at how I am often pitied in the beginning of a relationship when people find out in the business world that I actually believe this is true. There's actually pity sometimes. I remember being at a dinner with a group of people down and it was approaching Easter and they knew I was a Christian and they actually said to me, one of the women said to me, I don't really want to discuss Easter because I know that's coming up for you and I don't want to wreck your Easter. Now, do you see the sweet arrogance of that? <laughs> I thought, so sweet that she didn't want to destroy my Easter. So arrogant that you're so confident you can. <laughs> and so I just said to her, I'm, I'm willing to take that risk if you are. And so we had a dinner, and again, in the end of the dinner, the tone had changed to respect and intrigue. God had to finish the rest of the work, but the barriers to belief were definitely removed that night. And yes, I still celebrated Easter that year. <laughs> so this message is not made for all of us to become apologists ready to answer every question about our faith. That's neither effective nor is it possible. However, today is to fire us up again to the amazing faith and how much God has given us and encouraged us and to be confident in and to give us plenty to stand in when those gaps that we hit that he's decided not make clear, he's given us so much to stand in those gaps and confidently wait for him to show up. If you, had, if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, I hope this message will break down some of the false barriers you might be up against this message will not make you a believer. 
But I hope that in praying that it sets you free to be able to believe. The message is our start to Easter and it hopes that wherever your faith may be, hearing more of the realities of God's story will continue to release your heart even more joy, more as more and more joins with your heart and rejoices. This is all true. That's the hope of this message. Just simply we walk out of here renewed and gone. It's all true. I want to start by focusing on the need for the resurrection. Why was it so necessary that God would send his son to die a horrible death and then to be physically raised again? The Bible is clear that we are pretty familiar with the story that we are separated from God by sin. Could you hand me that water? We are separated from God by sin. Um, and that God has given us a way back to him. He gave us the law, and he laid it out for us, and he said, here's all you have to do. Follow all the rules. Be righteous. Do it on your own. But by the way, I know you can't do it on your own. The man didn't believe him. said, I'll do it on my own. I'll follow all the rules. I'll follow the righteous. Failed, failed, failed. God, through the prophets and the law, prophets, and says, someday, don't worry, I will send the real lamb. Just like the lamb of the Old Testament covered the sins of the Old Testament, I will send a new lamb, and I will send a lamb that will fully take away the sins of the world. Most of us are familiar with this mission and the need fulfilled by Jesus as the Lamb of God, but I want to point to another work of the resurrection, the destruction of death. One of the strongest experiences of my life was watching my brother-in-law, Scott, pass from life to death as he fought with cancer at age 35. We were sitting in a family room and sharing life with him as he was in his hospice bed, And he was animated and telling stories. And then we went to bed and an hour later we came down and he had passed. When I walked into that room and I saw Scott, I was stunned at what I saw because it was the first time that I had seen death. More accurately, the first time I'd seen the absence of life. Just an hour before Scott was animated, even though struggling a little bit, animated and motivated and moving and alive. And now what stood before me was lifelessness and it was in total control and I could not believe the power it had. I was stunned by the powerlessness death brought. I remember feeling so outmatched that I actually mumbled out loud, this is why there had to be a resurrection. Only a resurrection can defeat this enemy. We sing many hymns that are simply not true reflection of the power of death. We sing as if it's just a simple passing over, a simple sleep, a gentle journey. Death is a violent thief. It destroys, and if it was not for Jesus, it had final victory with no answer and no coming back. The resurrection did not redefine death. It destroyed death and literally took all of its power away. That's why it had to be a physical resurrection and not just a spiritual resurrection. It is that tortured, lifeless, breathless body and is rising again that destroyed death. But we've admitted that we live in a world that denies the resurrection as religion, false hope, wishful thinking. Let's look at those challenges head on for a minute, a few minutes. Most of the information we gather about the resurrection is indeed from the Bible. However, it is important to realize that historians not favorable to Christianity also write about Jesus and the crucifixion. 
The most famous historian is Josephus. Here's a quote from Josephus. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accepted the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing accused by men, the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Josephus, an unfavorable critic of Christianity, testifies Jesus lived, Jesus did amazing things, Jesus won the people over, Jesus was crucified by Pilate, and Christianity was born out of that crucifixion and still to this day has not died. There are other non-biblical sources that confirm the life and death of Jesus. The truth is that the life and death of Jesus is not much debate. Just the resurrection is. It is true that most of the information about Jesus and the resurrection comes from the Bible. Before we look at the, what the Bible says, I'd like to take just a few minutes to geek out a little bit and talk about the Bible itself. Talk about the Bible as a source. If we're going to be quoting the Bible and so much information, is it important? Isn't it important that we know whether or not it can be trusted? Let me just give you, I can't touch the evidences, but I'm just going to give you a few confidence builders to be able to tell you about this incredible piece that God has given us. Millions of pages and documents, thousands of studies over thousands of years have tried to both prove and disprove the Bible. There is no way to go through all of them, but I want to highlight a few of confidence. First, historical literature is validated by a very standard measurement. All historical literature, what we get Roman history from, what we get literature history from, everything that we have is validated by the same standard. And it's basically by two measurements. One, when did the event happen and how close is the first written record we have of that event? The closer it is, the more accurate it is believed. The second is the measurement of how many pieces of manuscripts do we have that back up that writing and how accurate that writing is. So the more manuscripts, the better. I wanted to duplicate this chart, but it's really geeky. But what it shows is that the Bible stands alone in both distance between writing, 40 years between an event and the first written document. The next closest is 200 years in any literature. And after that, it goes to 400, then 1,200. The number of manuscripts, the Bible has at least three times its next closest competitor. My only point is just to say that no matter how you measure it by any independent measure, the Bible is by any objective standard measurement of confirmation, the Bible is more confirmed as an ancient document than any other piece of literature we have anywhere. I just think that's cool. Archaeology continues to find more and more to confirm the accuracy of the Bible. And I thought, I can quote all kinds of Christian sources, but I kind of like pulling in non-Christian sources. So here's another one. U.S. News and World Report, not exactly a Christian source. Did an article, Is the Bible True? Byline, New Discoveries Offer Surprising Support for Key Moments in the Scriptures. They went back and did a study and said, here were the things we were missing in the last several decades. One was, David was believed to be a mythological character and not a real king. Because they had never found all of this great kingdom stuff, they never found plates, never found anything to affirm that that kingdom. And so, David had been pushed to mythology and Jewish mythology. 
Well, archaeology has since discovered so much evidence that they now align that there was a great King David over the kingdom of Israel. And uh, USA News report said this, in extraordinary ways, archaeology has affirmed the historical core of the Old and the New Testaments. That's from U.S. News and World Reports. A couple other comments. The past four decades, spectacular discoveries have produced a wealth of data illuminating the story of Jesus and the birth of Christianity. The picture that has emerged overall closely matches the historical backdrop of the four Gospels. Even the tomb of Joseph of Caiaphas, the high priest who ruled over Jesus' crucifixion, has now been discovered and confirmed. It is now without doubt that Pilate was, in fact, the Roman leader when Jesus was crucified. More stuff happens. They actually made a comment and said, the truth is, the stuff that we don't know is usually from what we have not found. It isn't every time we find something, it seems to prove the Bible is true. How cool is that? There's so much misunderstanding about the Bible and how it came to be. There's kind of this thought. The Bible is made up of a bunch of unintelligent, made up by a bunch of unintelligent, superstitious, chauvinistic men hating women in the society that got together that created a story of the Bible and about Jesus. When the truth is, the, the books are written by many, many different authors. Most of them did not know one another and had no chance to compare notes. It was written on several different continents, and it was written over centuries of time, none being able to compare. And yet when combined, it tells a miraculously united story. There's no other piece of literature like it in the world. Had chauvinistic men created their own story in that society, they certainly would not have had Jesus reveal himself to a Samaritan outcast woman. They certainly would not have created a story where they had the men running from Gethsemane, hiding in a room, cowering, afraid for their lives, while the women were brave enough to go to the grave. That's not the way it would have gone down. In fact, as the writings persisted over the next couple centuries, the women started to get slid back a little bit in the story because they knew they didn't have as much testimony to it. That was a prejudice of the society at the time. But at the time the Gospels were written, these dudes were just writing down everything they saw as they saw it, and they weren't thinking about how will it be accepted. So when it was women at the tomb, they just wrote it. It gives the testimony. Society didn't shape the story. This story shaped society. The truth is, is over time, that started to develop and became the story of the scriptures. And there's different perspectives in the four gospels, but they all tell the same story. Then there are all those prophecies. All these prophecies that were written in the Old Testament, sometimes hundreds of years, almost a thousand years before Jesus ever lived, and yet they came true. Things like the fact that he was going to be crucified. He was going to be betrayed by a friend. He would have no broken bones. He would be pierced for his transgressions. All, do you know that some mathematician geeks have calculated the odds of these prophecies taking place in any one person? And do you know what it comes out to be? If a hurricane blew through a junkyard and out the other side of it came out a perfectly operational Boeing 747, that's the odds of all these prophecies accidentally coming true in any one person. That's our Bible. In fact, sometimes the only argument people have, for instance, against Isaiah and the writing and the dating Isaiah is they simply say it's too accurate to have been written before Jesus' time. Oh, there's a nice self-defeating argument. 
And so we have this incredible, all I'm trying to say is that by any means, by any measure, this is the most incredible document that has ever been put together. And it is so clear that it was put together under the hand and the guidance of God. And no one's been able to destroy it in thousands and thousands of years, though so many have tried. And most people I've spoken to, 95% who don't believe in the Bible actually haven't read it. Or they've written bits and pieces of it. And knowing that allows me to be really excited to talk to them. I no longer look at them as enemies to be feared. I look at it with excitement to be able to open up the scriptures to them and to be able to share with them what I know to be true about this document from God. And you know what? I find that most of them are ready to listen. That when we get an audience, they're ready to listen. When you stand on your Bible, stand firm on its truth, standing on the archaeological, literological, epigraphical miracle, you're standing on the word of God, be proud, be bold, don't hold back. And yes, that's our word for the year. Don't hold back on this. Go for it. But we must approach and interact it with as it is, not static wisdom, but instead as it is described by God himself. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It is the living, breathing word of God. That is why we are making all this content available to you day after day, tying to the messages, devotions, podcasts, because it is not possible for you to drink in everything that you need to drink in and want to drink in on just a Sunday morning interaction with this message. That content that people are putting out, it's amazing. And it's so easily inaccessible. And it pours into your soul, into your spirit. I just say, go for it. Use it. Take a daily dive into this. This breathing word tells us who God is and it tells us who we are. Warning. Don't get shaken by the first argument that comes up that you can't answer. The first question that comes answers. I've had so many times where I thought, oh, I got spilled a little bit. And one dumb one was I remember hearing about when the Egyptians or when the Israelites walked through the Red Sea and then I read this report. It, was, it wasn't um, really the Red Sea. It was uh, several miles north. There was a little inlet called the Reed Sea, and it was only three inches deep, and they just got it wrong, and so the Israel, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense, they just got that, and then I thought, wait a minute, so the Egyptian army, entire Egyptian army drowned in three inches of water, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, I got shaken there for first, <laughs> and then I'm like, well, that's ridiculous, and I find out that so many of the arguments that are put forth when I just wait on them, I find out. So don't get panicked. Just move forward. When you hit something you can't answer, trust him and trust this. He'll be faithful. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So is my word that it goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. How cool is that? How many times I've seen that happen, you guys? Where God send out his word, and my words fail me, my thoughts fail me, and all of a sudden I wait on him, and God comes through, and he pulls it all together, and I'm like, oh, wow, how did you do that? So encouraging. So encouraging. Okay, so back to the reality of the resurrection. 
So we have outside testimonies of the resurrection that I've shown you. We have testimony of the resurrection by the most amazing, miraculous document that has ever been put together. So now, let's just spend our last few minutes on the resurrection itself. Again, I'm not going to go through everything, but just some thoughts. First, you have to deal with the empty tomb. It is important to realize that even the enemies of the resurrection help testify to the reality of the resurrection. It is both Jewish and Roman sources admit that the tomb was empty. Though thousands and thousands have searched for years, no evidence since that time in any way has ever been discovered in any source that has ever disproved that the tomb was empty. So even from our um, sources that are not favorable, they confirm that tomb was empty. Jesus was put in there and he was gone. Now, one of the theories to explain the empty tomb is that all of the searchers returned to the wrong tomb. That the Romans, the Jewish leaders, the women, and the disciples, all when they went back, just happened to go to the wrong tomb. And look again, I guess, now think about that. Rome needed Jesus to be dead. The Jewish leaders needed Jesus to be dead. That's why they posted a guard. They needed a body after three days. It is not intellectually tenable for me to believe that all of them, as well as the women, as well as the disciples, all somehow went to the wrong grave and never figured it out. Another theory, disciples stole the body. But the biblical record is very honest. The disciples never expect Jesus to physically rise from the dead. They all ran away when he was arrested. These men were afraid for their lives, hiding in a room, and they were not out planning a great conspiracy. Then, most of all, if not all of them, died, and they would have been dying for something that they knew was a lie. A group of men, somehow scared for their lives, hiding like a bunch of mice, reverse direction, go out and create the greatest conspiracy ever known to mankind, and then go out and die for it, sawed in half, crucified, mutilated, rather than admit that it was a hoax. Where in history can you show anything like that happening? You can't. People have died for something that wasn't true, but they believed it was true at the time that they died for it. These men would have been tortured and crucified and murdered knowing that they were dying for the very hoax they created. There was a man named Chuck Colson. Some of you are probably way too young to remember. Anybody know who Chuck Colson is? Some of you. All right, good. Chuck Colson was assistant to the, um, President Nixon. He was counsel for President Nixon. Bad dude. And when Watergate broke out, which is one of the biggest political nightmares of our history, there were four, four or five guys that knew it. What had happened? Chuck Colson was anything but a believer. He became a believer after the conspiracy because he said this. We could not keep a conspiracy for four of us quiet for one week when we weren't threatened for our lives. There is no way 12 men could have kept a conspiracy like this over under the threat of death and died for it. And he became one of the biggest proponents of Christianity and started an entire movement. Am I too close to the mic? Not far? Okay. Um, last, a couple more. We're almost wrapping it up here. Swoon theory. Another very popular theory. This one is actually the most popular theory, and that's the swoon theory, that Jesus was never really dead when he was placed in the tomb. Now, here's another thing. That's a 
about a 12-page article from the Journal of American Medicine studying the crucifixion. It's really tough to read, but it's amazing. Something about the scourging and the straps of bones that were tied into the fragments of the leather so they would rip through the flesh all the way to the bone and rip the flesh from Jesus' body. How much blood loss that he would have had carrying that cross through the streets, that that probably would have killed him anyway before he even put him on the cross. They placed um, spikes through his wrists and through his feet, and those, that little foot pedestal that they put on the cross, that wasn't to help him, that was to make him suffer more. Because you don't die on crucifixion from your spike wounds. You die from suffocation because you cannot take a breath. And so the Romans put that foot, foot pedestal, Sarah, so that right as you were about to die, you would take one more breath, stand up, and it would land you at the torture, and you could stay on that cross for three days. It was brutal. And then the final spear through the side, separating blood and water, providing death, proving death. Jesus actually died fairly quickly. Pilate even challenged it. Why did he die so quickly? Why? so that his legs wouldn't be broken. You see, when they wanted the crucified people to die, they broke their legs so that they couldn't push up on that pedestal any longer, and then they would suffocate. They broke the two people's legs on the other two thieves because they had lived, but when they came to Jesus, he was, died. he was dead. And so they didn't break his legs because the lamb couldn't have any broken bones. But after all this, somehow fooling professional executioners, somehow pulling off the death sign of separation of rule and blood. He's put in a cold tomb, and it has miraculous medicinal effects, no food or water. And he rises in three days, overpowers a Roman guard, pushes by the stone, and then goes and enables to fool 500 people that he rose from the dead. No. No. 500 witnesses. One of them being Paul. Paul was no friend of Jesus. He was killing Christians. A rich man with authority and privilege dies in a prison, losing everything that he had for one reason. He says, I saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. I'd like to handle one last misconception, and that is that somehow we tend to push this off as an old world issue. There's the thought that somehow those people were more predisposed to a resurrection. And so they were just more predisposed to believing in those kinds of things. I just want to share with you briefly, that's not true. That society didn't believe in a resurrection any more than we do today. The resurrection to that society in that time was just as miraculous as it would be if it happened today. So we cannot pass it off as an old world thing. Not all will accept it, but by all historical evidence and by all historical record, the best explanation is that Jesus was crucified and he died and he was buried. And then he was raised with a new body after three days. And N.T. Wright says, our faith does not shut itself off and live isolated from history. Faith in Jesus risen from the dead transcends, but it still includes history and science. The resurrection is not an absurd event that once happened in the old world, but the symbolic starting point of the new world. Jesus did not usher in a new religion or a new ethic or even a, just a new salvation. He ushered in new creation. Don't try to remember this all, folks. It's not the point. But remember it's there. And be encouraged. God has given us so much to stand don't hold back. When the Romans and the religious leaders of the day 
crucified Jesus, they were making a loud proclamation to the entire world of that time. We are in control. And if you tried to bring any rule or reign into this place or any other religion into this place, we will destroy you in the most humiliating, painful, and undeniable way possible. And then we will put you on public display for everyone to see. It didn't have the impact they intended because it didn't have the ending they could have ever expected. Instead, the Romans and the Jewish unleashed a victory that they could not have imagined and to this day have not been able to hold back. In rising from the dead, Jesus looked at the rulers of the world of tyranny, injustice, fear, and death and said, you have no power here anymore. It is finished. Jesus' resurrection established a ground floor where he looks at his children and he says, before the resurrection, there was no stop to how much your pain could take you down. There was no floor for which your ceiling and your fears would stop. There is no protection for you from the tyranny. But, my child, it stops here at the resurrection. Because all your pain stops here. Your fear is swallowed up and your death can take you no further. It's here at my resurrection where you rise again just like I did. Matthew records the women leaving the tomb and the women hurried away from the tomb and afraid, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell the disciples. At the empty tomb, fear of God in the way of great awe and wonder, Jesus rose. Jesus is alive. He is Lord. Met joy. Joy. Jesus is alive. And that means no matter what happens, I win and anything is possible. Where do we go from here? record and the risen Lord that we worship here today. And we like to respond here at Antioch. And the truth is, I think to a message like this, there's only one response, worship. Can we just celebrate the truth that we have just reveled in and that we will live in for eternity? That we celebrate not a religious event, but a historic event that changed not just religious history but all of history and a trunk that says to us there is no floor child anymore rise again let's worship